turn to Mark chapter 10. Look at verses 17 to 22. My goal was to preach on holiness. We will um, veer off a bit. The best laid plans didn't happen. We're going to look at idols and identity. Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he being the man, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, as desperate people, calling on you to use your word to shape us, uh, to change us, to conform us more and more to your image. Father, may I be worthy through the power of your spirit to speak your words today. Father, help me not to be a stumbling block to any who hear. Father, we ask you to speak your truth, to use your word to shape our hearts. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The year was 2003. I was a first-time dad. I didn't know any better. I'd received an invitation, so I thought it would be fine, but nobody warned me. I took my child into hell on earth. Flashing lights, frantic behavior, and the noise, my word, the noise. Animatronic animals playing music, kids running around screaming, parents running around screaming, I had taken my child to the devil's playground, Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> my son was not phased. Amidst the chaos and the noise, he ran past the ski ball, the video games, the little rides, even the pizza and the drinks to the ball pit. He had always loved balls, and this was a glorious pit full of multicolored balls that he could scoop up and hold in his arms as many as he could. We'll come back to that story, but first I want to talk about idolatry in the Christian life. Idolatry is actually the most frequently mentioned sin in the Bible. We see idolatry from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, with Adam and Eve seeking to be like God. And at the very end of the Bible, as several of the seven churches have named idolatry as, as their sin, being warned again and again of their continued idol-making. Idols show up and idolatry shows up everywhere in between Genesis and Revelation. And from the very beginning, idols make two very simple 
very extravagant promises to us. Number one, you shall surely not die. And number two, you shall be like God. These are the words of the serpent in Genesis 3, 5. He's essentially promising that life apart from God, life outside of a relationship with God, is not only possible, but that we can actually have God-like control over our lives. Now, our first instinct is to think of idols as something external, something that is outside of us, statues of stone or wood, possessions, people, devices, etc. But as we see this concept explained more and more throughout Scripture, we come to see that idols are, in fact, in our hearts. They are desires which control us and seek to displace the Lord. They're desires that shape our identity as we seek to serve them rather than the Lord. The first move of every idol, the very first move of idolatry is to move from good to great. We start with what is a good, created thing, something that the Lord has made and called good, but we ask it to be great. We invest it with our deepest hopes and we expect it to address our deepest fears. We give it authority and power over us so that something other than God becomes our greatest desire. In fact, it becomes our greatest good. And we see that in the story here of the rich young man. It's, it's interesting that this story is shared in three out of the four Gospels. From this, we can gain a composite sketch of who this man was who came to Jesus. We know that he is rich, that he is young, and according to Luke, he is a ruler, likely a leader of a local synagogue. From this, we can extrapolate that he is most likely a person of privilege, most likely born into a family of means. He's had opportunity to study the law. He's been selected into a position of influence. He has searched out the law and sought to live by it. He appears, by his own admission, to be a rule follower and has the respect of his peers. But in all of this perfectly curated picture, he still has doubts. He wonders, have have I done enough? Am I really saved? So when presented with an opportunity to address Jesus himself, he runs to him. Against the social norms of that time, where running is not um, what a ruler does, this man hikes up his robes and runs to Jesus and asks him one question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Their interaction is fascinating. He calls Jesus good teacher. And that's significant because teachers of the law reserve the use of that word good only for God alone. When this occurs, Jesus asks them, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. Jesus is beginning to tease out some of the root issues here. By referring to Jesus as good, it appears that the rich young ruler has some awareness that Jesus may be who he claims to be, the Son of God. And as we will see, while he may have wanted eternal life, he didn't want a relationship with Jesus. He merely wanted to know the next rule, the next step, the next path on his ladder up to heaven. Jesus comes and blows this away, as we'll see here. 
He lets him know that the entire path he's been constructing is faulty. Life in Christ is not merely a garnish or a final decoration. That last cucumber added to the salad, that last rug that ties the room together, to quote the dude. Jesus is calling him and us into a radical, life-changing teardown and remodel of our entire lives. As he knelt there asking Jesus' this question, it's not too big of a leap to believe that this man already knew the answer to the question. If he really was a local ruler of the synagogue, he would know that the rabbis taught the way to heaven was through obeying the law and avoiding all sin. Jesus' Jesus's initial response is to actually quote the latter half of the Ten Commandments to him. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, etc. And the man's reply is, check. You know, all these things I have done from my youth. Now, I don't get the sense here that he is trying to deceive Jesus. While he may be deceiving himself, there doesn't appear to be any guile within him, any sense of trying to pull one over on Jesus. And the reality is Jesus doesn't call him out on any untruthfulness. For the sake of the larger point he's about to make, Jesus takes that man's reply at face value. You say you haven't sinned. You've kept the law since you were a youth. Fine, let's, let's go with that. There's still one more thing you lack. Can you imagine the man at this point, where he is in his life, on his knees, hungry for the last piece of the puzzle, the final leg of this journey that he's been on, ready to get back up and go on his way, secure. He's done everything to receive eternal life, totally unaware that Jesus is about to rock his world. And let him know he's not even on the right road at all. I mentioned that idolatry was the most referenced sin in the Bible, and among a lot of different passages uh, you could preach on idolatry, I chose this one. And the reason is I think this story captures so clearly people like us, you and me, people of privilege, many of whom have grown up in the church, believing we've been doing all we can to inherit eternal life, respected in the church, respected in the communities, confident that we've believed the right things and done the right things, but if, if we're honest with ourselves, still wondering, still having doubts, still fearful that maybe we're not as sure as we appear, and in the quiet of our hearts, we ask God these same questions. Am, am, I, am I really saved? What can I do to make sure? I feel like I might be missing that last piece. Jesus, just tell me what I need to do, and I will do it. Jesus' reply to the man highlights the defining issue here. Christianity has never been about what we do, but about what we love. It's not about deeds and actions, but what we set our hearts upon in worship. When Jesus tells the man, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. He's not simply denouncing wealth as an evil, so that once you give it all away, you're good to go. Even though there's televangelists that would love you to, to please believe that. He's, he's not simply adding one more rule onto a life built on rules. He's clearly identifying what is separating this man from his Savior. He's identifying an idol in the man's heart that is doing all it can to ruthlessly be Lord of his life. So, after rehearsing for the man the final half of the Ten Commandments, he now gets to the first commandment. 
you shall have no other gods before me. If the man is truly keeping all the commandments, then what about the first commandment? Or what about the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If the man is obeying all of these, then nothing else should be as important as God. But the reason that we all fail to obey is idolatry. What Jesus has done is diagnose what is killing the man. No one else is asked to give up everything in Scripture. Zacchaeus is asked to give up a half, but nowhere else does it say, give up everything and you'll be with me in heaven. He's treating this man drastically and very pointedly to save this man because he knows what this man's particular affliction is. It's not money itself, but money that is considered more important than Jesus. He wants the most important thing in our life so that we will see that we don't need it to be happy and to be whole and to be complete and to be loved by him. The reason the man came to Jesus was because at some level he knew that he was not good. He'd been living a life like, like so many of us do in the church and Christian communities, a life of, of plausible deniability. Doing enough so that anyone watching, but not watching too closely, anyone watching could only ever assume that we are good, or at least better than most. But still believing the lies of the world, the lies of our idols, <clears throat> it's up to us, and it's up to our efforts all the while missing the very heart of the gospel, that only Christ is good, and it's only through his efforts that we have any hope at all. That the gospel is not something you do, it's something that you receive. But that, that is the way of idols. They define good and evil in ways that are in opposition to God's definitions. False gods create false laws and false definitions of what is success and what is failure, and then they promise blessings and curses on the basis of those who succeed and fail. If I have enough money, if I look a certain way, if I live in a certain neighborhood, if I get certain people to like me and respect me, then and only then will my life have meaning. Promising great blessings and security, idols provide neither, but instead create powerful addictions and actually create identities. I wanted to read an excerpt from a letter that Tolian Chavijan wrote. <clears throat> Some of you may be aware of him, even aware of his situation. He was a prominent pastor who uh, two years ago was uh, forced to leave his church, a series of extramarital affairs and other issues. It took, I think, time and perspective and biblical counsel the Lord's moving, that he wrote these words. I'm going to read a few paragraphs. Um, this starts about halfway through what he wrote. I painfully learned that the more you anchor your identity and sense of worth in something or someone smaller than God, the more pain you will experience when you lose it all. My confidence was severely misplaced. Confidence in status, reputation, power, and position. The way I spoke, the praise I received, financial security and success. In other words, confidence in things that were smaller than God and his grace. Confidence in things that were unstable and fleeting and easily taken away. Because I had existentially located my significance in things smaller than God, 
My loss did not simply usher in grief and pain and shame and regret. It ushered in a severe identity crisis. Without these things and people that I had come to depend on to make me feel like I mattered, I no longer knew who I was. The journey God has taken me on over the last two years has been one of complete deconstruction, not just externally, but internally. The exploration of who I am, who God is, what is real, what matters, and so on has been one of pure stripping. It has felt like my skin being painfully ripped from my bones. Just when I think I can't take any more, God seems to dig deeper. Echoes of Don Treader there. As painful as it has been, however, it has also been very liberating. As my counselor and mentor told me the other day, the purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to kick you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. This is so true. Death before resurrection has always been and will always be God's mode of operation. Dark desperation always precedes deep deliverance. That is my hope. That is my only lifeline. So finally, so whether you're a pastor or an ex-pastor or just a beat up and burned out human, here's the good news. Who you really are has nothing to do with you. How much you can accomplish, who you can become, what you've done or failed to do, the size of your church or the size of your sin, your behavior, good or bad, your strengths, your weaknesses, your family background, your education, your looks, and so on, your identity is firmly anchored in Christ's accomplishment not yours. His strength, not yours. His performance, not yours. His victory, not yours. The gospel doesn't just free you from what other people think about you. It frees you from what you think about yourself. Those words illustrate that even as God has made humankind in his image, we still try to make idols in our image, but the idols we create that we think we control actually work to remake us in their image. It's a frightening twist, people becoming their idols, fragile, fleeting, and lifeless. How sad it is that us, the divine image bearers, are reduced to being images of our idols. And this is nowhere so clearly illustrated as in Exodus 32 with the golden calf episode. We're familiar with the story. Moses is on Mount Sinai. At the foot of Mount Sinai, the people complain, the people grumble, the people demand an image. And so Aaron gives in to the people, and they worship this calf they make out of gold. And as a response, Moses comes down the mountain, has that idol destroyed, ground up, and the ash and the, the fragments of it thrown out over the water, and the people are forced to consume it. The very idol they had worshipped, they drink in. And it's interesting that here, from this point forward, is when the people begin to be identified as with the attributes of their idol. Only after this point do they become known as stiff-necked, hard-hearted, having ears that cannot hear, eyes that cannot see. They actually image what they worship. They take it in and become their dead, impotent idol as their idolatry becomes their identity. And it's no different today. As we take in the idols of our, into our hearts, we become spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, and spiritually dumb. Our hearts become hardened, and we become spiritually insensitive. 
Our lives become vain, empty, and meaningless when we worship things other than the living God and trust in things other than Jesus, the very Jesus who has come to restore us, to recreate and renew us, to make our hard hearts soft, to open our deaf ears, to loosen our dumb, our, our dumb tongues, to give sight to our blind eyes. He's making all things new, and he is reversing this curse by taking on our humanity. He restores that very image of God in us that has been demolished in our own idolatry. We, in turn, are then able to image him as we worship him. We experience his pattern of life, death, and resurrection. We can never be neutral in this. We either image the creator or we image created things and find our worth and identity there. But it's never easy and often quite painful and often quite sorrowful to dethrone these idols from our lives. We return to the story in Mark. I don't want us to miss these, these two verses here, starting with verse 21. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Please don't miss this part. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is notable for a couple of reasons. First, other than the mention of Jesus loving Lazarus and his sisters in the book of John, this is the only other instance recorded in the Gospels of Jesus loving somebody. Now, before you leave and say, Brad Boyle said Jesus doesn't love people, that's not, we know that's not the case. We know John in the upper room, Jesus says that, you know, the new commandment I give to you, love, I, just as I love, he, we know Jesus loves people. Just for this point, it's pretty amazing that nowhere else in Mark, nowhere else in Matthew, nowhere else in Luke does it say Jesus loved somebody. The other thing that I don't want us to miss is what prompted that love. Mark tells us what prompted the love was that Jesus looked at him. There is such power and compassion in the gaze of Jesus Christ. Whereas man looks on the outward appearance, we know that God and the Son of God looks on the heart. And when he looks upon this man and when he looked upon his heart, it says he loved him. And the result of this love, Jesus got personal. Jesus got into his business. He was looking at his heart and seeing very clearly what the real problem was, what was separating him. It was an all-consuming idol, a cancer, and he knew that it needed to go, every last bit of it. Oncologists never recommend removing only part of the cancer. It's absolutely critical to remove every last bit. Even a small piece left behind can grow and come back to consume the person. And it is the same exact way with idols. There is no negotiating. There are no halfway measures that are available to us. Jesus tells the man to get rid of everything. Again, not because money or wealth is intrinsically evil, but because of the worth the man was giving to it and the way it was forming his identity it was an idol that had dethroned the one true God, and it had enslaved the man was killing him. The man didn't know it yet, but Jesus did. 
And he loved him by demanding the sacrifice of the very thing that sought to destroy the man. Now, the response of the man is to be expected. It says he went away sorrowful. He just couldn't handle it. He left full of sorrow, for he loved his wealth, and he defined himself by it. What's interesting is four chapters later, that exact language is used to describe what Jesus was feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. He knew that he was about to experience utter desertion. His father, the core of his identity, was about to forsake him. As Tim Keller points out, when Jesus told the man that he had to give it all up, the man became sorrowful because money was for him what the father was to Jesus. It was his identity. To to no longer have that money would be to no longer know who he was. And so he walks away. I think a lot of us can relate to the sorrow of the rich young ruler. We don't know ourselves outside of our our idols. It's what forms so much of our identity, and it's, it's frightening. It, it's really frightening what we will do, and I think we will do a lot of pretty horrible things to fight to hold on to those idols that are forming our identity. It's, it's just so hard to imagine life without those things. We become willing to pay any price to keep those idols on the throne because they define who we are. But the truth is, idols never satisfy And idols themselves are never satisfied. They always demand more. More and more from you, more and more of you. It's the nature of idols to ask for more and more and to give less and less until they reach the point where they ask for everything and give us absolutely nothing at all. False gods tear us to pieces while the one true God makes us whole. So our response is is likely be like the rich young man. To walk away grieving and sorrowful, it's, it is so hard to tear down the idol. They never come out easily. But whatever you think is going to give you a life of happiness apart from God is the very thing that God will demand of you. It is killing you whether you realize it or not. Because he loves us, As he looks at us, he wants us to recognize them and remove them. So what what do we do next? I I think it's important to first identify our idols and then seek how best to dethrone them. Our responses to our situations, whether our our idols are blessing us or, or not, are what reveals the true objects of our worship. If we do something for which we expect a particular result, like work real hard, but not get you know, the, the promotion or the grade that we expected, or we make ourselves look real nice and nobody takes notice of that, or we do something kind for a friend and we don't get appreciated as much as we think we should be. Those sorts of results we don't get, our reactions often reveal what our idols are. If I'm more angry about not getting the attention, respect, and credit that I think I deserve, it becomes clear what my idol may be and and who it isn't. Money, credit, attention, my self-esteem, all these things displace God from the rightful throne of my heart. So I've I've shared some of these questions previously, and I'd like to share them again. I, I want you to spend some time and think on these questions as a diagnostic tool for what, what might be idols 
in, in our lives. And I encourage you to ask them to one another. I mentioned I was previously going to speak on holiness, and one point that I was going to make is that uh, holiness is not an individual operating in isolation and moving towards holiness. It is, it's best done here in the church. It's best done in Christian fellowship. Jesus promised us a personal relationship, but never a private one. And I think asking these types of questions to one another can help other people see how we are um, lying to ourselves or things that we may have a blind spot towards. So question number one, what disappoints you? When we feel overwhelmed by dis disappointment, it's a good sign that something has become perhaps more proportionately important than it should. Is it politics, uh, people we've looked up to, stock market, grades, sports teams if they win or lose? We may have placed intense hope and longing on things other than God. Number two, what do you complain about the most? Ask someone close to you about your typical complaints. If you're typically or constantly complaining about your finances, maybe money has become too important. If you constantly complain about a lack of respect, a lack of recognition, um, perhaps that lack of respect um, matters more than it should. What we complain about reveals what, we, what really matters to us. Number three, where do you make financial sacrifices? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your money flows most easily out to those things which are most important to you, those things that you love and value the most. Our patterns of spending can reveal our idols sometimes. Number four, what worries you? Is it the idea of losing something, someone, your job, your reputation? It could be the fear of being ridiculed. Maybe it's the fear of not measuring up as a parent, um, feeling like you don't have it all together. I always think of, um, this is a side rant, I apologize. Inst Instagram and the, uh, different social medias have been just so debilitating to self-esteem. We, we tend to look at these perfectly curated lives with uh, idyllic vacations and families that have it all together and we feel really poorly about ourselves. When I speak to uh, new students during orientation at the college, talk a little bit about the duck syndrome, where a duck glides along the water looking like he has it all together, but underneath the water he's paddling like crazy to move around. And a lot of times our lives are like that. All we see is this picture, oh, that person has it all together, everything's good, but underneath they're furiously working so hard to stay afloat. Whatever keeps you up at night, has the potential to be an idol. Number five, where is your comfort? Where do you go when you're hurting? Is it to the refrigerator? To a friend to gossip? Do you seek escape in video games, pornography, substance abuse, one more episode on Netflix? Where do you look for emotional rescue? Is it people agreeing with you? people liking you on social media? Um, is it your comfort in the words of the world or in God's word? Number six, what infuriates you? Can you stand to lose at anything? Could it be that being the best is your idol? How much does it bother you when someone is better than you at something? How do you respond in traffic? 
What about when somebody embarrasses you or doesn't treat you with respect that you think you deserve? What's the real issue? What provokes awe in you is number seven. Has the gospel become commonplace? Is the Lord's Supper just a matter of going through the motions? Is God's word one of many options in your daily schedule? Is the church just another customer-centered service in the world that needs a drop-down menu for you to select your preferences? Number eight, what do you get excited about? Are you more excited about your Sunday morning worship or your Sunday afternoon nap? Is Saturday afternoon college football the highlight of your week or the release date of an ex-Marvel movie? Now, the first time I ever shared these, my wife thought I was pointing that Sunday afternoon nap directly at her. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm really not. I mean, this is how important sleep is in our family. Uh, this is just a true confession, so you parents that find your identity in being better than other parents can feel better once I share this. <laughs> we wanted to be able to sleep late on Saturdays after we had kids, so once our kids were able to do simple functions like go to the refrigerator and pull out something, we went ahead and created a system. On Friday night, we would put a sippy cup of juice and a bowl of dry cereal covered up and in the fridge, and we would tune the TV to the channel so that when on Saturday morning there were cartoons... And it worked really well. We could get that extra hour of sleep. But one Friday night, we were in bed, and we hear voices, like people shouting at each other. And so I get up and go out there, and Kobe is sitting there at like 11.30 at night, <laughs> eating cereal, drinking sippy cup, watching cops. <laughs> Calmly sipping as these cops perp walk a guy who just held up a pawn shop or something. So your idols can be detrimental to your children as well. <laughs> Finally, what do you dream about? Number nine, what do you dream about? Archbishop William Temple said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. What fantasy has a grip on you? What occupies your thought life when you have nothing to think about? Is it material goods? or a relationship with somebody? Aspirations are fine, but the question is why you aspire to those things. Is your motivation to give God glory, or is your motivation your own glory, fame, and fortune? So maybe, maybe these questions are helpful as you ask yourself, ask one another, in, in, in the whole goal of seeking to detect and dethrone these idols as the Lord works in you. So back to that um, devil's playground of Chuck E. Cheese. Idolatry is an intentional act. It's a conscious decision to take something that we know has no power and give it supreme power over us and give it supreme worth in our lives. My son was in there with his arms full of balls and he couldn't move. Um, the things that he thought he was possessing were actually possessing him and he was growing increasingly frustrated. Frustrated that he couldn't hold them all, frustrated that he couldn't walk or function with them, Frustrated that they kept pulling him down into the mess. Our idols care nothing for us. They promised the world but delivered death. So after hollering above the noise and the, the bells and the weird animals playing music, I kept yelling at him to drop the balls, drop the balls, but I finally had to act. So Against my better judgment and most likely the recommendation of the CDC, I stepped into the preschool petri dish of boogers and 
pea and soggy pizza crust, and I walked over to my son, and I knocked those balls out of his hands, every single one of them. I picked him up, and I carried him out of the pit, and he was, he was furious. He was distraught. He was sorrowful, but he was out. Now, I have no illusions about my son's continuing interest in those particular balls in that particular pit. If I would have set him down, he would have run right back in. If I would have come back and brought him back the next day or the next week, same story. It's not enough to simply remove the idols or to have the idols removed, whether against our will or with it, for they have a persistent grip and they have to be replaced. Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he wrote, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one, and by the love of what is good, to then expel the love of what is evil. The purest and best affection that we can ever admit into our lives is the love of our Lord. I mentioned earlier the love that this man, the love that Jesus had for this man, and it was a love that diagnosed the idols of his heart and prescribed the only cure that could save him. Just as I believe we can all identify with the rich young ruler, so can Jesus in a way we never can. In fact, there has never been a richer ruler than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not asking the rich young ruler to do anything that he hasn't already done himself in far greater measure. Jesus lived in incomparable wealth and glory, ruling creation from heaven and he proceeded to empty himself of everything, all of it for our sakes. He was rich and became poor for us. So we ask, how do we replace idols? By loving and meditating on the only good, true God, the one who loved us enough to send his only son, emptied of all his glory, to pay the price for our sins, to come down, look at us, love us, and identify the idols in our hands that we are gripping so tightly, that are controlling us, that are pulling us down into the muck, even we don't even realize it. While idols demand more and more of us and condemn us for our failures, our God has met the demands himself and is neither surprised by nor afraid of our sin. While all other gods, while every single idol demands enslavement and brings death, only this God brings freedom and life and brings it abundantly. Let us call on this God. Let us worship and give our lives to this God as we seek to recognize, remove, and replace the idols in our hearts and find our identity only in him. Let's pray. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, and uphold us with a willing spirit. Father God, we thank you for looking at us, for seeing us clearly, and loving us enough to show us our idols. Father, give us courage to diagnose and dethrone the idols of our hearts, and to seek you as the only one worth worshiping.
Remake us, Father, in the image of your Son, the one you see when you look at us. We thank you for this truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.